Hello, I'm Akonefa Achian in for Georges Collinet on a special edition of Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. Each week, we bring you hour-long stories about the music of Africa and the diaspora. But did you know that online since 2016, we have also presented a series of 20-minute-long podcasts? Our Afropop Close-Up series has just concluded its second season. As the title suggests, we go behind the music and share intimate stories of the struggles and triumphs of human life in Rwanda, Nigeria, Haiti, the Bahamas, Venezuela, and the African diasporas of Greece, the UK, New York, and San Francisco. It's been an exciting season with brand new producers reporting from the field and some veteran producers like Morgan Greenstreet and Banning Air. Today, we bring you highlights of some of the most captivating stories in the season. If you like what you hear, please go to iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher and search for Afropop Worldwide and subscribe to our podcast to listen to the entire series. Okay, on with the highlights. Several programs this season have dealt with the subject of imprisonment, both in the literal and metaphoric sense. Producer Charulata Sinha reports on Rwanda's most famous and beloved singer, Kizito Mihigo, who went missing under very mysterious circumstances. Turns out, Mihigo was arrested on charges of conspiracy to assassinate the president of Rwanda, Paul Kagame. But was it just? This is Kizito Mihigo and the politics of music in post-genocide Rwanda. Kazito Mihigo, Rwanda's most beloved singer of the past two decades, had a special talent for live performance. At all of his concerts, people in the audience couldn't help but clap and sing along. He was particularly adept at reading a crowd, taking them from a joyful call and response to a mournful ballad. He was a performer who was passionately dedicated to his audience above all else, which is important to keep in mind. Uh, Kizito has been a hero. He's kind of poet in our mother tongue, very uh, touching, touching words. He used touching words, especially when he's singing about reconciliation. Reconciliation, yeah, that's what touched me the most. That's Christine Mukama. She was a close family friend of Kizito Mihigo, though they lost touch after the war. He was, he also is a survivor of the genocide. And that's Rene Mugenzi, a human rights activist. So he was kind of someone who's teaching um, peace and harmony. It has been over 20 years since a horrific genocide devastated Rwanda, leaving 800,000 dead in its wake. And the small East African nation has recovered really well by most standards. Under the leadership of President Paul Kagame, the country has seen vast economic growth and infrastructural improvements. But the man responsible for much of Rwanda's healing was not a statesman or a politician, but a singer. And also he had some um, reconciliation program where he was speaking, he had uh, he was holding meetings and uh, workshops, or TV or prison where he was speaking to the people who committed genocide. 
and the people who experience genocide teaching them to forget to forgive and live in peace in harmony Kazito Mihigo was a Tutsi survivor of the genocide orphaned at 13 by Hutu fighters he displayed a remarkable talent for music at a young age composing Christian gospel songs on the organ for the Catholic Church of Rwanda he was granted a scholarship to study at the Conservatory of Paris and began his music career in 2001 since then he has composed 400 songs, which showcase his distinctive, soulful voice and incredible lyrical ability. He was by far the most popular singer in Rwanda, and his fingerprints can be found on each major cultural milestone in the past 20 years. The Rwandan national anthem, Mihigo was a co-writer. The 10th genocide commemoration, Mihigo performed. And the 11th, and the 12th, and the 13th, and the 14th. But what was most remarkable about Mihigo was his activism for peace, deeply rooted in his religious beliefs. Before studying music in Paris, Mihigo enrolled in seminary, where he found the religious conviction to forgive the people who killed his parents. In many ways, this commitment to peace has fueled his activism and music. In 2010, he created the Kazito Mihigo Peace Foundation. He traveled the country, performing everywhere from schools to jails, facilitating discussions of peace and tolerance. In his teaching of forgiveness and love, he quotes some Bible quotes and what Jesus said this, he just said that. And also he has many songs that are very religious. The choirs across the country have been singing those songs in churches, but not now, not anymore now. Why did choirs stop singing Mihigo's songs? The trouble began on April 7th, 2014. The 20th commemoration of the genocide. World leaders and dignitaries were gathered in Rwanda's capital, Kigali. Mihigo was scheduled to perform. But he didn't perform. In fact, he wasn't seen or heard from for more than a week. His friends and family grew increasingly worried, along with his huge fan base. Then, on April 15, 2014, the Rwanda National Police held a press conference. <laughs> In the video, Kazito was handcuffed and dazed. The chief of police announced that he was arrested on suspicion of collaborating with foreign terrorist groups to oust the current ruling party of Rwanda, the Rwanda Patriotic Front. To the shock of the journalist present, he confessed to this in the press conference. Yeah, he was kidnapped by security service and they denied of having her for a few days. They just arrested her, but they had for a few days, about four days. And then, uh, because of the pressure, they brought him and to the media. His official charge, conspiracy, to assassinate the president of Rwanda, Paul Kagame. Rwanda's greatest activist for peace, arrested on suspicion of terrorism, didn't make sense to me, and it didn't make sense to Rwandans either. They didn't believe that. But some young people were confused because they get one message if they you know, mixed messages from the, the government. So there's a kind of confusion. Mm. One minute, the Rwandan government invited Kazito to sing at the commemoration of the genocide. And the next, he was in handcuffs, confessing to conspiracy charges. 
When I first heard about this story, I read up as much as I could about Kazito and his arrest. But I don't know nearly enough about Rwanda to explain how this happened. So I spoke to someone who does. My name is Susan Thompson, and I'm a professor of peace and conflict studies at Colgate University. Professor Thompson says that in order to understand what happened with Gazito, we must take a closer look at Rwanda's ruling party, the Rwanda Patriotic Front, Rwanda's president, Paul Kagame, and the 1994 genocide. The genocide ended in July 1994 when the Rwandan Patriotic Front took statehouse and installed themselves as the sole authority in Rwanda. And they have essentially been the sole authority in Rwanda since then. And Kagame himself uh, took power. He acceded to power in March 2000, regularizing his role as the leader of Rwanda. So he's been president by ascension, in essence, since March 2000. The RPF, a party made up of Tutsis, has been the ruling power in Rwanda for more than 20 years, with Paul Kagame at the helm. And while they have maintained relative peace, they do so by strictly controlling Rwandan politics and free speech. On paper, it's a constitutional republic, so there are um, multiple parties. The dominant party is the Rwandan Patriotic Front, the party of Paul Kagame. They endorse President Kagame as their presidential candidate. So they're not standing candidates. And the few parties that have tried, their leaders have been harassed, jailed, um, executed. So the Green Party in 2010 had its executive secretary decapitated in what the RPF declared uh, a robbery, but the robbery was never investigated. So it is on paper a democracy, but it, it runs as a dictatorship. A key way in which the RPF and Kagame maintain their power is through the careful construction of a particular narrative about the 1994 genocide. It's pretty straightforward. Um, the RPF are the heroes. Hutu, because of their ethnic hatred, which was sharpened during Belgian colonization, um, rose up and killed their Tutsi neighbors because, you know, they hate them. So that's the official narrative. In 2012, the UN released a report titled On War Crimes and Other Atrocities in the Congo. The report confirmed what many Rwandans had known for decades. What that report did was documented between 1993 and 2003 instances of ethnically motivated violence. Um, the RPF was implicated. It does appear that they had a military policy to eliminate Hutu civilians, men, women and children, uh, men in particular. And what the UN wanted was for further investigations to ensue. The RPF, with its American and British backers, was able to suppress that action. But uh, Rwandans themselves are like, yeah, I, you know, the RPF killed my brother. Yeah, the RPF killed my sister. Yeah, the RPF disappeared my nephew. The RPF maintains the support of the U.S. and the U.K. because of its relative economic stability. It is the most secure nation in the Great Lakes region of East Africa, and thus too strategic of an ally to be challenged by the Western world. So, the crimes of the RPF against Hutus remain unaccounted for and undiscussed. That is, until March 2014. Just weeks before the 20th commemoration of the genocide, Kazito Mihigo released a song on YouTube called Igiso Banuro Siu Rupfu, or The Meaning of Death. <laughs> Chibi, 
So the song was calling people that many people died. We should not remember some and forget others. The song's lyrics read, Though the genocide orphaned me, let it not make me lose empathy for others. Their lives, too, were brutally taken but not qualified as genocide. Those brothers and sisters, they too are human beings. I pray for them. I comfort them. I remember them. Death is never good, be it by the genocide or war or slaughtered and revenge killings. He wanted to explain that not only the Tunisi dies, other people died and they are suffering, their family are suffering. We should also remember them. We should also give them support, give them counseling, understand their, understand their pain and how that's how we would create a good community. That's how we create harmony and that's how we build a true overlasting reconciliation. The song got more than 30,000 views within two days of its posting. Oh, everybody liked the song. Some of them translated it. They started to put words in English so people who understand English can know what he's singing. The video was portraying a message which Rwandan have been dreaming to receive, something which they really wanted. And so somebody finally you know, had the courage to say it. But the video was abruptly taken down and the song banned from public broadcast. Soon after, all of Mihigo's songs were banned from the radio. And soon after that, Mihigo himself disappeared, only to emerge again in handcuffs, confessing to conspiracy charges. Rwandans, however, were quick to connect the dots. I think the vast majority of people in Rwanda believe that he was tortured and forced to confess. That's Timothy Longman, director of the African Studies Center at Boston University. The people in Rwanda are not stupid. Um, they can't say that openly. They can't disagree with the regime. They can't accuse it. But, you know, in the privacy of their homes, people would tell you that they think he was innocent. Yeah, so it's a long um, hymn, actually, about the reconciliation that Rwandans um, need, in his opinion. So he would like to see healing across ethnic lines and a commemoration of all lives lost. And that was, you know, absolutely the wrong thing to say in the months running up to the commemoration, because the commemoration, of course, is a very simple story. Tutsi died, Hutu killed, RPS saved, and are ultimately the heroes. Preparations for the 20th commemoration began in 2012. It was enormously important for the RPF to present a united front for the foreign governments expected at the event. The RPF, still shaken from the 2012 UN report, was particularly paranoid about dissent rising among the Rwandan population. Mihigo's song couldn't have been released at a more inconvenient time for the RPF and Paul Kagame. Their moral legitimacy as well as their political legitimacy really hinge on this idea that they are like the heroes of the post-1994 narrative because they crafted it and they dedicated themselves to it. So it, it's really a statement of even the most gentle ideas that, you know, who two lives matter is met with the full weight of the state. This is a highly authoritarian government. It does not tolerate criticism. Um, and it has a particular narrative about the Rwandan past and about Rwandan society that people have to buy into. And if they don't, then they bear the consequences. And that's what's happened to Kazito. He challenged that narrative. So they cut him down. Overnight, Mihigo went from a valuable asset of the government, a celebrity symbol of unification and peace, to a toxic liability considered too dangerous to the RPF to continue living freely, all because of a single song. Mujigo is such an interesting case because he's a Tutsi survivor. He's not a Hutu survivor. 
So he, in some ways, is their biggest nightmare because he's not a Tutsi who's dedicated to the cause of like Tutsi and power. He's like, let's share power. The other things they say, he wants to kill the president. He doesn't even know how to use a gun. He knows how to use the guitar and the piano. Can you kill the president with the piano? Come on. Mihiko was arrested, officially, because of messages he exchanged with a man who was tied to the Rwanda National Congress, a rebel group based in Uganda. But these messages were found on his phone several days after his kidnapping by the Rwanda secret police. I think they found all those messages by chance because they were interviewing him about the songs, but they took advantage of those messages to charge him with a crime. Many people took to Twitter and other social media to express their confusion at the alleged WhatsApp messages. When Mihiko's trial went to court, the prosecution's case rested on these messages. A couple lines and a text conversation became a vast conspiracy against the Rwandan government. There was no mention of the song. Instead, Rwandan authorities claimed Mihigo was in cahoots with the Democratic Forces for the Liberation of Rwanda, the FDLR, in Uganda, even though the man Mihigo texted was in South Africa and only had distant ties to a different political group, the RNC. So the events was very simple. They reaped these charges, which he accepted. If we come back to the court, he will accept everything. It's a normal trend in Rwanda. It's very normal. The case became a public spectacle. News outlets in Rwanda are heavily monitored and censored by the government. So his charges went uncriticized and unchallenged. The government wanted to make sure that his, his popularity gets down. So they make sure that it's very well publicized and that somebody who government have done everything for him. Now he's working with the enemy. So they make sure that he is well promoted. The trial dragged out over a period of six months. Finally, in February 2015, Mihigo was sentenced to 10 years in prison for conspiracy against the government of Paul Kagame. Paul Kagame ran for re-election in August 2017. The Constitution of Rwanda had to be amended in order to allow him to run for a third term. The amendment passed with full support. Kagame secured a landslide victory, winning 99% of the votes cast. 2017 marks his 17th year in office. The constitutional amendment would theoretically allow Kagame to stay in power until 2034. <laughs> You know, the reality is that, that people pass around cassettes and pass around CDs, and so people will still listen to his music, even if it's not played on the radio. Kizito Mingo came to oppose the regime which was preaching uh, revenge, and him, he was preaching the opposite. Forgiveness, forgive. Those people, even though they killed, they deserve peace. They deserve forgiveness. They deserve life. 
Kazito is currently alive and being held in Kigali Central Prison, serving his 10-year sentence. According to a source close to him, he works in the prison kitchen. It's unlikely he will ever sing publicly again. Charulata Sinha with an inside report on politics and music in Rwanda. Akonefa Achia in for Georges Collinet as we sample highlights from our Afropop close-up podcast series. Our next close-up continues the theme of imprisonment and also LGBTQ rights. The latter is a theme Afropop has rarely touched on in our program, so we are grateful to producer Hannah Harris-Green and David Waters for bringing us this story. It tells what happened when two women from Uganda and Zimbabwe found themselves in the choir group of the UK's most notorious immigrant detention centre, Yarlswood. When I'm asked like all the time like to describe myself and like how do you know that you're gay, prove that you're gay, like how do you do that? For me to describe myself, I just say that I'm just a normal person and I have I have an open heart. I have an open heart and this is just who I am. I can prove it because I can kiss a girl and I can do you you can't prove it. It's just who you are, it's in you. It's not something that you you physically do, it's just who you are. If you're queer and you live somewhere where it's safe enough to come out, you probably have to deal with people who just don't believe you. They tell you it's just a phase or it's a choice or you're just being difficult. But for someone like Sibo, getting people to believe she's who she says she is could be life or death. It started at a boarding school in Bulawayo when she was 13. So, the initiation process basically is like, it's an excuse for the seniors to take the piss out the freshmen. They'll tell you, today is celebrity day. I got dressed up, I was so excited. I was like, P Diddy, I was ready. She told me, get on the chair and then pretend that this is the swimming pool here in front of you and dive in. I was mortified. I was like, what? Like, are you serious? It's floor, it was like hardwood floor like that. Yeah, they literally like make you feel like you really need to do it or, you know, you're not in. It was, it was crazy. And actually I did. I swam all the way to the other end of the <laughs> It went really well from there. That's when I started experiencing different feelings within myself. They were quite confusing for me. It's weird because like, I've been, you know, like I'd been in contact with girls before. But when I was younger and I was thinking, you know, we're just playing. And I didn't think it was who I am. I had one girl that was like my my very close friend. We were like sisters. So confided in her about this these feelings, you know, this this nightmare I was having. And then she was like, you know, if that's who you are, then you need to be careful because I don't know how other people are gonna feel about it. It's not normal. And little did I know that she was gonna go and say something about it. After I told her, all I kept doing that 
whole evening was obsessing whether she was alright. Was she still my friend? Like, that's how it was, literally. Like, are you still my friend? Are you okay? Come sit next to me. And, you know, I was, I was just, I was trying too hard. Got back to me, it was like, yeah, I'd even left the school. So everyone in the school already knew, but I didn't know that they knew. So everyone was kind of like being sly towards me, like, and I wasn't understanding, like, why, why are you looking at me like that? And then when the boys approached me and they were like, so what are you saying about this, this rumor about you being a lesbian? I was like, huh? They were like, yeah, everybody knows, everybody knows. Growing up, I was always told, like, I shouldn't be in town by myself. This is how my dad used to keep us like caged in. He would tell us, if you walk alone in town, you're gonna get kidnapped. And I don't even know like how I even built up that, that courage to like think, you know, I'm going to that bus stop. One of the drivers approached me and he said to me, you know, why are you crying? Where are you going? And I, I, I told him, I said, I'm running away. And he was like, okay, I'll come get in the front and I'll take you. The whole way through, I was thinking to myself, my dad said, I'm a young girl, I'm going to get kidnapped. But at the same time, I'm thinking, deep down inside, I was thinking, okay, like, I'm free. This rumour, it started spreading around town. We were catching school buses. Everyone in the school buses knew. The drivers knew. It was, it was getting out of hand. And people started roughing me up in town. Like, there wasn't a day I'd come back with my uniform intact. So my mum started arranging some, some way to get some passports prepared and she sold, um, she sold our family home to buy us tickets to come here. And then we left 2005 when I was 14. But this freedom didn't last. When she was 19 years old, Sibo did something she couldn't take back. One night, she took a taxi to the movies with her friends. She says the driver was her friend's grandfather, and he became angry with them for being out late, which led to an altercation. The night ended with Sibo and her friends stealing the car. They confessed to the robbery. Sibo was sentenced to two years in prison, and she thought she would be free again once her sentence was over. But one day, she was in the kitchen where she worked as a prison cook. One of the officers came in with the letter, deportation order, bang, that was it. Read through it, I think there's somewhere there that says you can appeal, that's it, bye. The first thought that came to my head is, what am I gonna do if I end up back in Zimbabwe? Cause now I'm a older version of me and a more out there version of me. Like what is going to happen? You know, oh my gosh, I'd be slaughtered. Sibo <laughs> lost her legal status when she pled guilty to the robbery. But she was sure that going back to Zimbabwe would be as good as a death sentence. So she claimed asylum on the basis of her sexuality. Her ability to stay in the UK depends on whether or not the Home Office believes that she is gay, and that being gay means that she would be in danger if she were to be deported. Back in 2003, the UK recognized that gay people from certain countries were part of a persecuted political group and eligible for asylum. But since then, queer asylum seekers have faced invasive and humiliating questioning from the UK Home Office to prove their cases. And sometimes, even when the Home Office is convinced that an asylum seeker is in fact gay, they still deport them to countries where homosexuality is illegal, arguing the asylum seeker could just pretend to be straight. Why you play, why you play tricks on me? You play tricks on me? 
From prison, Sibo was sent to Jarl's Wood, an immigration detention center where women wait out their unresolved immigration cases, either until they are deported, released back into the UK, or, in some cases, until they die inside Jarl's Wood's walls. The first thing you see, there's a big metal gate. There's like a razor wire that goes over the top of the gate. Just the minute you get inside the gate, you feel, you know, the... What is it? Is it the nerves? It starts kicking in. And as soon as you get into the big gate, all you see is just a door. Yeah, a little door. The first thing that hit Sibo as she was moving in was that she was still locked up. And it wasn't until later that she realized she didn't know when she was going to get out. I saw a message, a message on the, a message on the wall, and it said, God is in control, finally released. 2009 to 2013. And it kind of just made me think, like, am I going to be here for, for that many years? When you're in bed in Yarlswood, lying still, and it's all quiet, you hear keys and radios. Nowadays, when I hear jingling keys, like, I think the door's about to be locked or something. You hear doors closing. You hear people crying outside. There are like a few nights where I heard people screaming, help me, help me, help me, in the middle of the night. You're hurting me, like, get away from me, get off me. They've tied me up, someone look, someone look out your window. There are a few nights where I heard that. When you're looking out of the window in Yarlswood, what you can see is just basically wasteland, mainly just bushes and there's a fence. Oh, I would think about um, jumping out the window. <laughs> not not like, not in a suicidal way, but I would think about jumping out the window just to feel a bit free. What the air feels like on the other side of the, of the window, on the, other side of, on, on the other side of the fence, what does the air feel like there? I'd wonder if anyone's ever been over there. And if you have, like, how did you get there? And do I think I could get there? You know, would I ever see, like, the other side of that window? Would I ever see the other side of that bush? And in all this, just as she would get to know people, they'd be gone. The people get called and told, look, you've got a password and reception and you never see them again. The people get told you're going to the healthcare and you never see them again. Then she met Maureen. I was in Yarswood and I was like, um, I was in the choir. And like she was sitting around, like she like she didn't know what she was doing. We asked her, like, do you want to join? And then she was like, yeah. I thought she was nice. <laughs> so we were actually quite a, like a large group of us because we were all known like in Yarswood as like um I don't like to use this context, but they used to say we were the gay group. So most of the people, they didn't really associate with us as much. So we used to associate with each other in our group. And Maureen was new. We were like all young and we saw her and we thought, okay, Maureen's young too. She could be involved. Maureen had managed to live in Uganda into her 20s, keeping her sexual identity concealed from all but her closest family. She even lived with another woman before she was discovered and run out of town. At first, Maureen hoped things would calm down at home and she would be able to go back. Her UK visa was short term. 
But anti-gay sentiment in Uganda only grew worse, and Maureen eventually decided to claim asylum. She was detained during an appointment with immigration officials. Unlike Sibo, Maureen had never committed a crime in the UK. I got closer with them, we became friends, we used to look out for each other. Actually, the first time that she came to our room, she, Maureen's, like, first year, she was very cool towards me, like, very, very, I don't know whether she was trying to play hard to get or what, but she, she didn't really talk to me much at first. She's lying, I wasn't cool to her. We used to play a lot, play fight, because she used to bully me. <laughs> in a not in a bad way. <laughs> I, I, I used to take the piss out of her, so I used to always call her like the short one. Like that's what I used to call her. I see, short one, and, <laughs> and yeah, and I used to like just make funnies with her, and she would kick me, and we grew like very close in like a really short period of time. Cause I found that Maureen is um, a, Maureen is a very very easy to talk to. And it's so easy for you to just fall into like a pattern with her. It's so easy for you to fall into a pattern with her where you where you just feel like you just tell her everything. She would be texting me, what are you doing? What are you up to? Come, let's chill. I used to go to Maureen's room. I used to pick her up and I used to go outside with her. And we used to sit in the garden and we used to talk for hours, like just talk. And we became like really, really good friends. Like we very, very close friends. She was a friend. Yeah, she was a friend. Some people were released, some people were deported, and it kind of remained me and Sibo in a way that if I was down, the only person to talk to would be Sibo. If she is down, the only person to talk to is me. We were so close that people realized that we had feelings for each other even before asking questions. Are you guys together? Are you guys together? Are you guys like a couple? Yeah. By the time I started picking her up and going to the garden with her, I already knew that I wanted to be more than friends with her. But at that time, it was difficult because I was kind of caught in a limbo. Okay, maybe her, she had, you know, she, she, she had her feelings for me and she wasn't telling me. I didn't know whether Maureen wanted to be in any relationship with me. I didn't know what to do or what to say to her, but I just thought it's better for me to like build a relationship first like get to know her and let her get to know me and maybe at some point she'll she'll start fancying me as well i can't say i denied it she was my very good friend i didn't deny my feelings for her but i hadn't realized them until when she was away from me how i felt i missed her you know i just wanted to see her i just wanted to be on the phone with her I kind of stopped holding on to i want to go home i want to go home i had somebody there with me that day, I have it in my mind. It was, it was confusing. It was devastating. I remember watching her go. I even refused to hug her. Bye. On the 12th of December, 2014, I was being deported. To listen to the rest of Shackled Love, LGBT asylum seekers in the UK, and hear what happened to Sibo Dube and Maureen Nabisere in Yarlswood, subscribe to our podcast. You are listening to Highlights from Afropop Close-Up, Season 2. Season 3 of our Afropop Close-Up series is coming up very soon. In celebration of our 30th anniversary year, 
producers will tell updated stories from some of our most memorable programs. If you have ever wondered how a genre of music has evolved or where an artist we've interviewed is now, you won't want to miss this season. Be sure to subscribe to Afropop Worldwide on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcast to hear that episode and the rest of this second season of the Afropop Close-Up podcast. I'm Akonefa Achia, and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. From the UK, we stay in the African diaspora, this time in Boston, Massachusetts, where producer Ian Koss shares the story of Amal Hussein and Hamdi Mohammed, two 23-year-old Somali women born in Kenya, where their parents fled to as refugees. Since moving to Boston at a young age, they find freedom and connection to their grandmothers through poetry. I first got interested in when I seen the video of my grandma doing it, like the Somali Gabe. It's like a circle, and there's a lady who's reciting the poetry, and there's women dancing in the middle of it. So I was just like, oh my God, what is this? It brings you in. Like, I remember I didn't even understand some of the words, but just the flow, the rhythm, the drums, the beat, everything, like you're literally inside think of it like you're there but like your mind your soul is not there though so that's when I was just like oh my goodness maybe one day but there's a difference here in their stories Hamdi grew up with her grandmother in the house whispering poems into her ears performing at family gatherings Amal has only heard her grandmother's poems on videos like this one we just heard taped at a wedding 7,000 miles away. She hasn't seen her grandmother for 20 years. She lived through when Somalia was really beautiful and peaceful, and then she lived through the Civil War, and when we left, she didn't want to come. She was always like, this is my sand. This is where I feel like is home. How long would you talk on the phone? Hours. (laughs) It was ours, and like right now we have WhatsApp. Back then we had like the the cards, so we'd go to the corner store and we like put twenty dollars on a card or something. We'll dial it and we'll call her. She would tell me stories on how she learned the gabe. I believe she said when she was four years old, her mother used to do gabe. So she would tell me how like her mother would go into a room, sometimes even a funeral, and they would say, "Hey, can you read us a poem?" She was telling me how the very first place she performed was like it was Somali Independence Day and the principal of the school asked her, hey, can you read us a poem? And she went up there. She was kind of scared at first. But after that, just the feeling of everyone cheering and everyone rooting for her. She just that always she always held on to that as well and she realized the big difference that she can make the way amal talks about her grandmother it's like she's there or here i suppose here in the us in boston even here in the room 
she'll say things like, you know how everyone has their grandmother like in the house and it's like, I've had that feeling through the phone, which is pretty amazing. Every time I went and I spoke to her, she'd always tell me things that I need to hear rather than things that I want to hear. So she was always like my backbone in a way. Amal grew up hearing poetry in the house, but she never dared write her own until she met Hamdi. That's Hamdi. <laughs> it's Hamdi's the writer. The Islamic middle school they went to was in Mansfield, way out in the suburbs south of Boston. Every morning we used to go to South Station and we used to take the commuter rail. I guess like destiny was forced. Like it was just forced. Like we just had to get to know each other. Since I was super quiet, most of our commuter rail rides in the beginning, well, I didn't know her that well. It would just be reading a book about myself or something like that. Oh, I'd be writing. And she was just writing, writing. And obviously like, I'd go and bother her and see like what she was writing. And like she was like, okay, now your turn. You have to write a poem. And I did kind of force her to write it too because she was also forcing me to do things so out of my comfort zone. <laughs> So after a while, we just got into this habit where whenever we're on the train, we're writing poetry. Sometimes all I can afford is time. Penniless, yet I'm timeless. So we would uh, like come up with a different topic and then we would just write like silently. And then I'll give her the paper and she'll finish it or I'll finish it at the end. But that cycle can keep going on and on and on. Just like Gabe in a way. The land of unbroken horizons. The land of golden camels and slanted trees. The land of red dust and memories. The land of unsi and spices. The land of halwa and shah. Then the you hear the like train stop and you're like, oh, okay, and then you get up and then you go back to the real world, so. As young girls, Hamdi and Amal always wrote their poems in English, which makes sense because that was the language they learned to read and write in school. Right. The first thing is that the Somali community, when they arrive here in the United States, Somalis arrive here in different ages. The elders, the middle-aged, the young children. The children usually, you know, learn the language quickly. The elders, you know, it takes them time. So right away, within a few years, there is a language barrier, not between the society and Somali elders, but the Somali elders and their own children. My name is Yusuf Abdullah, and, and I am the Imam of Boston Islamic Center. Amal and Hamdi grew up coming to the Boston Islamic Center for Friday prayers or to break their fast during Ramadan. It's the only Somali-owned and operated mosque in the state, and it's modest. No arching dome, no minaret. The building used to be a car repair shop. In his 10 years as Imam, Yusuf has noticed that the language gap between children, parents, and grandparents is part of a much deeper divide, really a cultural divide. Somalis are a nation of poets and poetry. The proverbs and the idioms, it's rich in that term. I mean, where I grew up, when everybody comes home from herding, you know, animals or cows or goats, that's when our parents used to share those things with us. As we speak, Yusuf's young son is running in wide circles around the carpeted hall of the mosque. After trying to shush him a few times, Yusuf hands over his phone so his son can watch YouTube videos. Turning back to the stories and poems that he grew up on, Yusuf says simply, they don't make sense to kids growing up here. It relates to Kamal, Herodin, goat, you know, the shepherd, 
the reverse things that make sense in there, but not here. See the rain? It was basically something to celebrate. Here we stay inside when it rains, even we keep the kids inside. But there, it is, you know, everybody goes outside, especially kids, and we play outside with the rain. Everything, everything is different when you come to the United States. So of course you can tell stories, it's not enough. They don't understand. And going back, it's not easy. So the point is, since there is a great difference between the two environments, the children in here are Americans. And it is actually a far story for them to be related to Somalia. The bitter truth of his words was borne out in the weather. It rained as I left the mosque, like it had rained for days and days over a wet Boston spring. At the same moment, parts of Somalia had passed two years without seeing rain. How much is water worth? How much would you pay for wet dirt? Oil rainbows on sidewalks, the sound of rain on your rooftop. How much is life worth? Can you gather your lifeblood in your hands? Watch as the heartbeats devolve, deteriorate into dust. How much water will be brushed away? Like it ain't the fabric of our bodies. Like it ain't the fuel of ourselves. Like water ain't worth a damn thing anymore. I pray for months of monsoons, for a hailstorm of water droplets, soaking into the earth, soaking onto their faces. May God grace us with rain. Do your parents ever make fun of you if you, you know, complain about the heat or something? They make fun of me every time I complain. They're like, you can't withstand anything. And they say, that's because you're American. You can't, you know. You complain it's too hot, too cold, you're tired. My mom's like, I wasn't tired until I was 30. How are you tired, you know? But yeah. Once again, this is Hamdi Mohammed. She would say, why do Americans hate the rain? Like, it's such a blessing, you know? Because our country doesn't get that much rainfall each year. So the rainy season is almost like a celebration, really, whenever it happens. Hamdi and her grandmother used to walk together like this in the city. They'd start in South Boston and go for miles along quiet streets lined with triple-decker apartments, sometimes all the way down to the waterfront. Her grandmother would tell stories about nomadic life, about following the rain, the grass, and the animals. She would teach us about like the aqal, like the temporary housing, like you'd have to build it, you know, from like hides and stuff. And like whenever you're moving, like as a nomad, like you're always on the go. So you put the aqal materials on top of the camel and you would take it with you to the next spot. Hamdi's grandmother left Boston almost 10 years ago to go back home. She's living in Kenya now, where it's safer. That's where she feels she belongs, just like Amal's grandmother. And that feeling of belonging elsewhere seems to trickle down through the family, a little more diluted with each generation. So they would always, you know, tell me, they'll point out things like, oh, you know, we have a similar tree like this in Somalia, or, oh, they would tell me about, like, the different plants and stuff like that, different fruits. So they like talking about back home. Anything that has to do with back home, they like talking about it. Are your parents the same? Do they talk about back home a lot? Of course, that's home to them. So it's always, like, a repetitive story. 
course. Do you ever get tired of it? Never, ever. I always, like the more I hear about it, the more I just want to go back. It's like a place where everyone is just like you. Same language, same religion. Like nothing, no one's foreign. We're not foreign, so it's like, it's home. So I just want to experience that one day too. During this conversation, we've been walking to Amal's house. It's just outside Dudley Square in the Roxbury neighborhood of Boston. And she's quick to add that this is home too. Just a different kind of home. No camels, no grandparents, but lots of memories. The girls who play basketball here, do you remember? (laughs) On the court and off the court, you make friends, yeah. (laughs) On the court, you make enemies. (laughs) But off the court, you're all friends again, so... (laughs) Me, personally, I wasn't good at basketball. She was better than I was. So I would just pass the ball to her. (laughs) And then the mosque would be right down there. We'd go down there and pray after, and then come right back up to play some more. Everywhere we go in the neighborhood, there are stories like this, and personal connections. We meet a cousin who Amal had lost touch with, a shopkeeper who was on the phone with Hamdi's mother. Strangers would recognize them just by the family resemblance. So I can see the face of her mom through her, that's why. Yeah, and both of them. Watching them in these interactions, it seems like Hamdi and Amal shift effortlessly between Somali and English. So nice to meet you. But then when I ask them about it, turns out they're both feeling kind of anxious every time they have to speak Somali. You have to remember, there's always that danger of referring to a person as an object. My mom, before I go inside any store, she said, don't embarrass me, okay? So that's why I keep it to a minimum when I'm speaking Somali. We'd always hear the same remarks. I don't know how deep you've heard it, but it's always like, you should know your language. Yes. So I'll give you a little mini lecture after, you know, you mess up. They're like, ah, oh, you need to learn Somali, okay? So then when you go to write in Somali, do you feel a lot of pressure then to... To try and get it right? Definitely. I would never want to offend anyone when it comes to the language because initially that's what Gabe is all about, the understanding of each other through our own language. Three years ago, Amal decided to take on that pressure, not just for herself, but for her grandmother, the woman she only knew through videos and phone calls. So... I got off the phone with my grandma, and, I'll, and right away I'm like, okay, I'm going to write a Somali poem. The poem is only seven lines, but that is more of a challenge than you might think. You know how there's like regular English, and then there's like poetic English, like William Shakespeare? It's like that. And Gabe is not just freeform poetry. It's more like a sonnet, if we're talking Shakespeare, where all the words have to fit in the right timing. So whenever I write, I always have this rhythm. And it's the rhythm my my grandma always used when she was reading her poetry. Then you need rhymes and alliteration. Like, it took me forever to even write the first line. (laughs) Actually, the second line. The first line was fast. The second line, now I'm trying to find something that rhymes with the last word of the first line. So that took forever because my Somali vocabulary isn't that big. And the meaning can't be too obvious. You have to tuck it into metaphors and proverbs references to landscapes that Amal could just barely recall. So I went to my mom, I went to my uncles, 
I went to my cousins, I went to everyone I could possibly go to, just so they can tell me, hey, like, maybe this is wrong, maybe that, like, maybe go look at that, or hey, this is totally wrong, fix that, bring that here, and things like that. And I remember calling my grandma, and like, she would listen to it. It's a warning. Like, I'm talking to all the Somali people that fleed away from Somalia in a way. We were exiled from our own country. And then the little kids that were used to the sand, we took that away from them. We came to a place where they make it seem so easy. It's the golden pot at the end of the rainbow. So in a way, it's like we left our own country, we were exiled, and we looked for a place that is non-existent. Well, at first she didn't talk. She was just really silent. She started crying. And then she was like, you're definitely my granddaughter. <laughs> like, we have that connection, that Gabe connection. Like, you... You took after me when it came to Gabe, and I want you to hold on to it, and I want you to continue, and I don't want anyone to ever tell you that you can't do it. When was that conversation? That was, I believe, like three years ago. So it's like a year before she passed away. We all knew she was sick, so we like I made sure I spoke to her often. And, uh, because my Somali name is Mumtaz, she, so she'd always say, oh, Mumtaz, the poet, you know? Which means, like, Mumtaz, like, you know, the most beautiful and things like that. That was, like, one of my last memories with her. October 27, that was the date my grandma died. I was also born on October 27. So the relationship of my grandma and I made a full circle in the end. 1027, bittersweet remedy of a life full of death, or shall I say strength? The day alone says it all. October 27, to and from heaven. Souls cry in tears of pieces, nothing wholesome about something to be forgotten. Birth pure, stained rotten. I wish I knew, perhaps I would have kicked softer. A few more hours, the 28th seems brighter. How a day of joy for my mother can be a day of pain for another. Or perhaps the same day, different year, rolling down her heart is a tear. Yeah, I'm supposed to celebrate. Hoorah, it's my day. So let me swallow the pain and hate everyone together. Prayers five times for the gone, six times for whoever's next, and every single time for my grandma. 1027. How do you know when a poem is finished? Honestly, I feel like my poems are never finished. And I think that's something I get from Gabe as well. Cause, because even when I'm done, I feel like I'm not. Both Amal and Hamdi hope to travel to Somalia in the next year. To meet the family they've never met. To see the landscapes they can just barely recall. And in a way, to imagine the people they might have been if history hadn't pulled their lives from the sandy soil where they were born. For Hamdi, at least, her grandmother is still there, living in Kenya at the moment, and waiting to see her granddaughter again after many years apart. Hamdi is working on a translation of her poem, For My Ayeo, 
You heard the first few lines at the beginning. We'll hear the last few lines now. Hamdi hopes to speak them to her grandmother in person and in Somali. I feel heavy, Ayeo, when we speak on the telephone. My memory of your hands are fading. Henna we used to wear, black and red, now gone. Make a prayer, Yeo, with your long black prayer beads. God is closer to you than I. I am coming soon, Yeo. Listen for my skin and bones. They always know where they came from. Ian Koss with his Afro-pop close-up podcast, For My Ayeo, learning Somali poetry from a distance. That's it for today's program, but you can hear all the other fantastic episodes of season one and two and follow season three in real time by subscribing to our podcast stream on iTunes, SoundCloud, or visit afropop.org. Funding for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art, and PRI Public Radio International affiliate stations around the U.S. And thank you for supporting your public radio station. Additional support for Afropop Worldwide comes from Post Mambo Cuban Music Seminars with Ned Sublet, 100% legal travel to Cuba, Next trips March 9th and July 1st, 2018. Post Mambo, that's P-O-S-T-M-A-M-B-O at gmail.com. Thanks to all the close-up producers for their hard work and an inspiring season. Special thanks to Charulata Sinha, Hannah Harris-Green, David Waters, and Ian Koss, whose Afropop close-up programs we feature today. Visit afropop.org for more. You can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at afropopww. My Afropop partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for World Music Productions. Research and production for this program by yours truly, Akonefa Achia. Join us next week for another edition of Afropop Worldwide. Our chief audio engineer and co-producer is Michael Jones. Banning Air and CC Smith edit our website, afropop.org. Our director of operations is Ben Richmond, and I'm Akonefa Achia. <laughs> R.I. Public Radio International.